Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with a rubicund Charles Coulomb. Rubicund? You mean like my face is flushed? Yes. Well, it's hot enough. And muggy. You know, it's hot and muggy here in beautiful uh, Trumau. It's, it's, it's hot. I'd put on the air conditioning, but I don't want to uh, blast your eardrums out. Oh, th thank you, Charles. Um, well, yeah. I exaggerate. I have a fan. I don't really have air conditioning. This is my little friend. Mm. Okay. Uh, we, we don't. We didn't hear it on that one. We, but uh... no, you oh. wouldn't hear him because I didn't put him on. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm doing this to spare your voice oh. or your earring or something. Yeah. We're very sensitive no, to that. We're, we're sensitive to, to mic breathing. We're sensitive to these things. Hold on just a minute. <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. A little bit closer, a little bit closer. Put There we go. Yeah. There we go. All right. No, so it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's been a quiet, uh, quiet week in Lake, Lake Wobegon, my hometown, out here in the prairie. No, sorry. That's Garrison Keeler. Different shtick. My mistake. Who? Garrison Keeler, Prairie Who? Home Companion. Who? Are you serious? I'm making a joke because he got airbrushed out of... He doesn't exist anymore. Well, he does for me. He does for you. Okay. And I don't even agree with his politics, so there. <laughs> okay. But, uh, no, I, I, I must say that uh, he and Stephen King are the foremost practitioners of Americana today. I mean, they're sort of like um, they do on the page what Norman Rockwell and Irving Berlin did in art and music. That's quite a statement for you. On the well, same level that they did what Norman Rockwell did in terms of Americana? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. They portray us in all our, our, our uh, absurdity and, and horror. And you'll notice that in King and Keeler, they both deal with humor and horror. It's just in differing proportions. But hmm. they're not that far from each other. Because, you know, there's a lot of darkness in the American soul. Prairie Earth, as you might say. American Gothic. <laughs> what, are you referring to the painting? American Gothic? Yes, and to the television series. And to, I mean... It may, we have a series which I can't recommend because of its uh, it, it it made uh, Game of Thrones look modest, but it was called uh, American Horror Story. Mm. You couldn't get away with a series called French Horror Story or English Horror Story, or Italian Horror Story, but American Horror Story has a certain ring to it. Yeah, there's a lot of well, it's like a it reminds me of like of the other title, American Werewolf in Paris, stuff like that. Exactly. An American Werewolf in London, which was the uh, the forebear of the story, and let's not forget that our um, uh, our American horror writers like Poe and Lovecraft did better initially in Europe than they did here. I mean, their work did obviously. Neither yeah. they both died poor, but uh, they got they caught on over in Europe, uh, over here in Europe, before they caught on in the states. Because they were such Americans. Okay. There's a weirdness to the American soul. I think we have to accept that. Yeah, I made peace with it in a way, yeah. in my own way. Well, I mean, you run a company that incorporates it. 
That's right. Uh, I wasn't going to say anything, but does anyone really know what happens on the 13th floor? 13th floor? You mean, wow, okay. You mean 35th floor? Say, no, I mean the 13th. And you notice immediately you get look confused as if you don't remember. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, very few people who've been on the 13th floor of the Tumblr building ever remember going in there. And you'll notice if you get on, if you get up right now and you run down the hallway and you jump on your elevator and look, you'll see there's no 13th, uh, there's no number 13. Why are you telling everyone this, Charles? This is not public information. Well, I think, you know, it's coming up to St. John's Eve in a few days. And in fact, it'll be, um, it'll be St. John's Day. Uh, when they uh, when they see the when they see this show, so I'm thinking they might as well know. We might as, I mean, they might as well know the 13th. I, now I, I'm not going to go into details. I mean, I, I swore the oath as much as anyone, so I'm not going to say anything else. But I'm not going to give details about what's on the 13th floor. I'm just going to say that there's a reason that sometimes when you go up that elevator, you see the number 13, and most of the time you don't. There's a reason for that. And it's endemic, not just, it's, it's only Tumblr House's expression of the American soul. And I, you know, there's a reason we had the witchcraft at Salem. There's, it all makes sense if you understand these things. Right. Why do you think you, when, you know, have you noticed every now and then that Tyrone and the security people won't go on the elevators? Yes, I've noticed that. Yeah, well, that's uh, oddly enough. I've noticed that's always the time the thirteen appears. They have a way of knowing somehow, and they're not going to get on that elevator when it, when it can stop, when it could stop at the thirteenth floor. Any other time, that's fine. But they take the stairs when when they think you can get off at the thirteenth floor, or worse. And I've never actually seen this happen. I think they're afraid something might get on on the thirteenth floor. Pretty spooky. Yeah, well, you know, it's no problem for me. I'm living over here in Dracula country, so I'm not frightened of it. <laughs> we, we have we have our own weirdnesses to deal with. We don't we don't need yours. <laughs> <sighs> it is getting close to St. John's Eve. I can feel it. Yeah. So so what else is new other than we're approaching St. John's Eve, Charles? How's well, how's it going? Well, it's going. It, uh, the weirdness of St. John's Eve is, is uh, spilling over deeply into the church. How? We have two weirdnesses going on. One is a very primal weirdness from the depths of the Amazon, the forsaken jungle hell, Whoa. the green mysteries. What I'm talking about, of course, is the Amazon Synod. Is that what it's called? All, yes, the Amazon Synod. Huh. All of the bats are being let out of the belfry just for the uh, just for the occasion. <laughs> Peter and Paul are going to play there. Mary being dead, Bob Dylan is going to sing. I mean, every geriatric person they could find is descending on the place. Uh, the Spanish nun has been specially sent by the Holy Father. Uh, she's been out for her support of priestesses. And uh, the Holy Father sent out a call, apparently, for uh, married priests 
to be ready to go to the Amazon, elderly married priests. So I'm sure that that's how they want to spend their last five or 10 years is in the steaming jungle hell. Um, you know, they want to leave their cushy retirement home in Jersey City or, or uh, Malden, Massachusetts, and go down to the Amazon. I'm, I'm sure that's going to happen. I mean, it, it is. And the best part, of course, the best part is that they want not just married priests, but they want more room for indigenous rights. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean? It means incorporating paganism wholesale into Catholic uh, liturgy. Oh. So I have an alternative prepared for the Amazon Synod to whatever it is, drivel they want to do. And I think, as you, I think you'll agree when you hear what it is. I think you'll agree that uh, my plan makes more sense than the Holy Father's plan. Rather than turning the Amazon into some weird experimental thing out of a sci-fi movie, remember the dark, the dark heart of America, rather than doing that, you're having this weird, strange Catholicism that comes bubbling up like Godzilla. No, no, no. Instead, because we've, we've, we're agreed, apparently, that the indigenous religions of the Amazon are at least equal and possibly superior in validity to Catholicism, We'll shut down the Amazon missions. The locals there don't need us. We'll pull all the bishops and all the priests out. We'll stop sending money to support the missions that won't exist anymore. That money can stay in Europe and America. Uh, the missionaries can be brought home to healthier climates. And the Amazon Indians and whoever else can enjoy worshiping Baal or whomever they want to. Because that's better than you know the God of the Christians who apparently the missionaries don't, or their masters anyway, don't really believe in anymore. And it will save a lot of money. No more money to the missions, or to Caritas, for that matter, uh, in Brazil. They can take care of themselves. Now, isn't that a smart move? It's a smart move. But how are we going to get uh, married priests in the church then? Well. That, that, that's important that we do that. No, I, I think it's more important that the, most of the German hierarchy, if, if we don't sit down the Amazon, what we do is we send most of the German hierarchy to the Amazon, and they can get married there or anything else they want to do. They'll leave their cathedrals and their nice jobs and houses in Germany, and they'll go to the steaming jungle hell of the Amazon and with their wives, maybe marry Indian chicks, you know, about half their size because they're these tall, elderly Germans. Nobody else would have them. Um, then, you know, it'll be great. So they can go to the Amazon themselves. And then the uh, the next pope can appoint a whole bunch of new bishops. So the plan for the Amazon, is that actually going to happen or is that still being deliberated? Well, on? it's what the Senate papers say. Now, whether or not they actually end up doing it and whether the Holy Father and in his infinite wisdom signs off on it, that's a whole other story, but it's certainly what they want to shove down everyone's throats and doubtless use, as as uh, one of the more uh, moronic bishops in Germany said, after the Amazon Synod, everything will be different. Now, the problem with saying something like that is that getting kicked out your house out of, you know, with a, a big fat boot in your rear, uh, that, that would be a change too, your lordship. Got to be careful in wanting change. 
Because sometimes change means you get pistol whipped rather than respected. The, the whole notion that change in itself is good is obviously had by, by only by people who have never been fired from jobs, divorced, or had someone die on them. Change is good. Yeah, well, you know what? All of our bodies are going to change one day when we stop inhabiting them. Okay, uh, what, what's the other item? Oh, well, the other item where the magic of St. John's Eve apparently has taken control of someone in the church is the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. <laughs> the last echo of the Crusades, which actually are making fun, but as an order and as an idea, I have nothing but a tremendous amount of love and admiration for the Order of Malta. As to what they've become over the past few years, I have very very little but uh, contempt. The uh, engineered overthrow of the last Grandmaster, Fra Matthew Festing, uh, because uh, the Chancellor, Albrecht Freiherr von Boslager, refused to resign when ordered to. Remember, these are people who take a vow of obedience. And the current Chancellor of the Order's way of exercising his vow of obedience was to say, hell no, I won't go, LBJ, how many kids you killed today? All right, he didn't say that about LBJ. But he did say, hell no, I won't go. And, and there's more. Well, I'm somehow whenever I get into the mindset of that age group, I, I just want to protest the war in Vietnam. You know what I'm saying? I don't blame you. I want to ride, I want to ride a Freedom Ride bus down, down to the south. I, 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 I just get so enthralled. I want to wear tie-dyes, and, and, and I want to rock out to Janis Joplin. Every time I think of the current leadership in the church, that's what I want to do. Anyway. So, uh, the, uh, the, the, I must admit, I've had some issues with the order for the past several years. Under Fra Matthew Festing, the last Grandmaster, um, the, um, well, the, the, motto of the, the motto of the order has traditionally been for the aid of the sick and the defense of the faith, Tuitio Fidei. They began translating it, however, not as defense of the faith, but as nurturing of the faith. And the reason given was the fear that their sovereign status, because the only place the order actually owns, there are three places, two parcels of land in Rome and one in Malta. And that's the territory of the order, plus all their embassies around the world. There are sovereign orders, they have embassies, they have passports and so forth. Well, a number of them were afraid that if they see if they didn't change defense of the faith to nurturing, they would come to be seen as merely a branch of the Catholic Church and then somehow lose their sovereign status. Okay. Uh, Cardinal Burke, who was appointed by uh, the Holy Father as patron of the order, and um, uh, Fra Matthew, the Grand Master, came to, came to their attention that the Chancellor was up to some monkey business, uh, both in terms of distribu distribution of condoms and uh, money laundering, a money laundering scheme that included the current Secretary of State, uh, His Eminence Cardinal Parolin, um, and so that was the reason von Burslager was ordered to resign. He refused, 
And the Holy Father personally intervened and ordered Fra Matthew to resign. He deposed him. Now, Fra Matthew, unfortunately, went along with the gag and he resigned. But what does this do to the vaunted sovereignty of the order? We know the Holy Father doesn't like the Prime Minister of Italy. Why doesn't he tell him to resign? He doesn't like President Trump. Why doesn't he depose him? Oh, that's right. Because they'd say, pound sand, old man, drop dead. And that's the kind of PR thing that the Holy Father would shy away from. So he bullied whom he could bully, which is kind of a hallmark of this pontificate. You know, and not just this pontificate. I mean, it's a very common motif for people uh, to uh, bully whom they can bully and suck up to whom they can't bully. Mm. You know, but a person who does that is not usually, there may be exceptions, and I'm sure this must be one, but usually persons with that particular habit of life are not considered excessively admirable. The word that's used is, um, hold on. Ah, cowardly bully. That's the phrase that was traditionally used in my day for such a person. Today, I think they call him man in charge or something. Anyway, that, uh, but that, that was what it was called back when, you know, back when uh, I was riding my brontosaur to school every day. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so the thing is that um, this, the problem in the Order of Malta has been brewing for a long time. Now, the other thing is that there are actually only a small minority of the members who are full members, i.e. professed. Rumor has it the, the Constitution is going to be altered this year, and rumor has it that they want to remove all the noble requirements. In other words, effectively turning it into a, a, a weird costume deal, a cross between the Knights of Columbus and uh, Caritas International, mm. which is nice, but then who, who wants to belong to it? What does it mean then? You know, if that's the case, considering how much they charge to be members, um, if they were to succeed in doing that, I would just leave if I remember. I wouldn't even bother. But it does leave the professed knights who have made a, uh, by and large, have made a deep profession to Christ and the church. So pray very strongly for them between now and the 8th of July when I think some particular decisions are going to be made. Um, I mean, it, it, it really is is horrible to see the order get it like this. Oh, but the cream of the jest, what, what, what's got me on this tangent, was um, uh, the current, uh, now while von Boslager really runs the order, he has a sort of um, Charlie McCarthy-like character. I won't tell you who Charlie McCarthy is. Look him up on Facebook. Not Facebook, uh, Wikipedia. Charlie McCarthy. Look him up, you'll find out. But this Charlie McCarthy-like character uh, is the uh, new Grandmaster de la Torre, who does pretty much what von Boslager tells him. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. After all, von Boslager has proven how important obedience is. If it were, after all, had been truly exercised, he wouldn't be there. But at any rate, uh, de la Torre sent out a letter uh, ordering uh, no use of the Tridentine Mass anywhere within the Order of Malta. Now, it was such a, a semi-literate letter and so silly that when it first came out, 
a number of commentators thought it was a phony. And it was in English alone when the, the language of orders in the, in the order is Italian. So it was very strange. And as I say, a number of people, a number of uh, Vaticanologists initially concluded it must be a fraud because it was so stupid. The, the, the actual order could never turn out something that idiotic. <laughs> because then it was, in fact, genuine. And no less than the head of the Western Association of the Order, Michael Grace, sent it out with a letter to all members of the Western Association of the United States, Order of Malta, saying that they were happily complying with it and that they should pray for those sections of the order that would have difficulty doing so. Well, there's difficulty doing so because the letter, what the letter requires is illegal. It's ultra vires. And what will become of it, I have no idea, but it certainly is going to cause something of a rip in the altar. It may be, on the one hand, it may just be a way of purging the order of uh, decent people. That could be, which is fine. I mean, no, I mean, they have the support of the Holy Father in doing this. If the Holy Father wants, I don't know what you would call it, but if that's what he wants, he's welcome to it. After all, he owns the church, not God. But, but what did you think the church was? It's the mystical body of the Pope. Did you know that? Did they teach you anything? No, I'm, I'm being unnecessarily nasty. And I want to go on record right now as saying that I'm sure the Holy Father doesn't mean anything he says or does. No one could. But at any rate, the... Um, the sad part in all of this, as I say, is to see something so wonderful, so venerable, shredded for the sake of nothing, laboring, a f uh, laundering a few million dollars, getting a few condoms out. Is it really worth it? Really? Now, some have said that the letter was actually von Boslager's way of cocking a snook at Cardinal Burke who had been suspended, he's still patron on paper, but he's, he's the Holy Father suspended his, uh, his powers. Um, and the, as you know, a few weeks ago, he was one of the co-signers of this doctrinal correction, which many doubtless inaccurately perceived as a snap of the uh, Holy Father. So some have said that this is von Boslager's way of uh, cocking his snook at Cardinal Burke. Uh, but it, it it all it does really is hold himself and his grandmaster uh, De La Torre up to ridicule, and the fact that the letter was so ridiculous. I mean, most of us have stupid sides to us. If we're smart, we try to conceal them. We don't run around with signs saying, "Look at me, I'm a big dum dum." But Sometimes people, uh, what can I tell you? They do what they want to do. That letter, I think, was an enormous mistake, however. And I believe it will come back to haunt everyone involved. Well. But it's just a little more St. John's magic to think about when you're dancing around the bonfire. Yes. Okay, very good. Um, in other news... 
I am now a third degree Knight of Columbus. And I, I was, in addition to that, I was elected to be the warden of my council for the next Colombian year. So you're gonna you're gonna run the council like a prison? No, that's wow. That's so rude, Charles. Well, no, you said you're gonna be warden. This is great. Uh, so, but you know, if you, for those of you who don't know the knights or are not familiar, you have to understand that the warden is in charge of hospitality and security for the business meetings. So this Sounds is a, like- so this is a brilliant decision. So who better, who better to assign than the president and CEO uh, of a company that's world famous for both its security team and its employment, uh, excuse me, employee hospitality? Yeah, they seem to treat people the same way. Now the question is: Are you going to be awarded like Ida Lupino was in all of those 1950s women's prison pictures? There are a lot of 1950s women's prison pictures. There sure are. Ida Lupino was the warden in half of them. Was she nice? As uh, <laughs> I don't think that really was an adjective that comes to mind. Not really, no. <laughs> Listen here, sister. You think you're tough. We're going to show you tough. That kind of thing. Well, I don't know. I mean, I... I'm learning from Tyrone, right? I mean, I'm asking him a lot of tips. And he's giving me some pretty good advice. A lot of cliche stuff, you know, like, uh, I mean, some people call him like, some people call him a trigger happy cowboy. Uh, I think that's unfair. Um, You know, (laughs) some of the, some of the advice he, you know, he gave to me were pretty cliche kind of, you know, better safe than sorry. Uh, Hope for the best, plan for the worst. Uh, Shoot first, ask questions later. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, 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 I know he's like that. I mean, gosh, I can remember Tyrone, uh, these two little ladies in the welcome wagon, when they uh, when they were first building the, the tower, the two little ladies in the welcome wagon came over and he slipped the cuffs on them. I had to get them out. That was very embarrassing. Yeah. Well, again, better safe than sorry, right? I mean, yeah, you, I you, you don't want to take chances on this thing. Yeah. I'd like to watch him go, go clean out the 13th floor. That ain't going to happen. Well... We all have our weaknesses, right? I mean, I guess you know Tyrone's weaknesses are. He doesn't take well to not. Yeah, the, the, the paranormal beings. and yeah, that kind of ethereal beings uh, are not his cup of tea. No, they, there was too much voodoo around when he was growing up. That's the problem. Yeah, but I'll tell you, uh, as far as hospitality goes, you know, I've noticed something about the hospitality at the Tumblr House Tower, and I and I and I'm not. I don't think I'm telling a tale out of out of school. I really don't. But I've noticed the difference in uh, the treatment of people. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. A, the uh, one of the poor Claire's comes over from Santa Barbara to talk about getting some of the books. Well, what happens? She is ushered into the uh, into the commissariat with the rest of us, and you know, this was about. Let's see, that was Wednesday. So I guess the whitefish wasn't mackerel yet, but it was turning into something. And uh, she ate it and thought it was just great. You know, oh, it's so wonderful. You, you have such a, a wonderful meal here. And you were all smiling and grinning. So was Steve. Isn't this nice? The sister has no idea what she's eating. But then, then the IRS man comes. I didn't even get to talk to him. I get pushed out of the way by Tyrone, let me tell you, talking about hospitality. And he gets whisked up to the executive dining room. 
Now, why would, and I hate to ask this, but why would an IRS agent get better treatment than a Fort Clarendon? Where's the fairness in that? Where's the hospitality in that? Well, I mean, that, that's just diplomacy right there, Charles. I mean, you know the IRS are targeting uh, prominent Christian businesses. Well, yeah, but there's something else. One is that the, the nun got to go back to her convent. I never did see that IRS man come back down. Well, I wish... Stop at the 13th floor, probably. And the worst of it was, he didn't come down. And then I called the IRS to see what had happened to, I don't want to mention his name, Agent Rutland. And then he said, who? What? They'd never heard of the man. So the whole thing really seemed very strange to me. I don't know what kind of hospitality suite you got there on the 13th floor, but I don't think anybody's coming back. You know, we're going to have to we're going to have to sign a new contract with with you Charles, and we're going to have to put an airtight confidentiality agreement on this. Uh, cuz you're you're getting a big mouth to be honest when it comes to these <laughs> things. Uh, this is this is not in the company's best interest that you disclose all these private affairs, Charles. That's not private. What if somebody came to visit on the tour and they, they it's the same elevator and they, they go up there and they see number 13 one time, they don't see it again. What are they going to think? It doesn't matter. Or, that, or that... as has happened, they see it on the way up, they come back down and they don't see it. Where did number 13 go? I, had, I was asked that question once by a nine-year-old kid from Polk Elementary School. Because remember, you, would, you had me take them on a tour. This is very embarrassing, ladies and gentlemen. But when my books don't sell very well, I, I have to help out. You know, take the elementary kids on tours. Anyway, it, it, and let me tell you that one time, acting as a waiter at the executive dining room, that was, that was just degrading. Anyway, anyway, so that's what happens when my books don't sell. But the kid says to me, Mister, why was why wasn't there why was there a thirteenth floor going up but not one coming down? And I assured him that of course that there was no thirteenth floor. And then we went back up and I showed him, I said, so no thirteenth floor. But he looked at me as though I had done something. So I don't think it's that private, and I don't think even a confidentiality agreement would uh, would cover it. So there. Okay. So if there's one takeaway that the audience should take take away from this is buy Charles's books, otherwise bad things happen to Charles. That's right. <laughs> See? Let that be a lesson, ladies and yeah. gentlemen. Buy my books or bad things happen to me. <laughs> yeah. You bet. If you ever want to see me again, you'll buy my books. <laughs> Actually, though, this does lead to an interesting phenomenon we've been discussing. And you know what that is? What? Well, in your uh, Endless Empty Hours, you've done a lot of research regarding our core audience. What is the makeup of our core audience? It's 97% uh, males under the age of 35. Well, it's good to know I'm still relevant and that I have something to say to the younger generation. But what is the, uh, what is the profile of the average Tumblr house reader? Oh, well, actually, it's, it's a large, a large uh, 
majority are, are, are women. So we have one set of people who watch the show and one set of people who read the books. That's right. I think somehow we need to get this to come together in some way. You know, you know, guys, there are several ways to do this. You can watch the show with one you love. I don't know that this would be very romantic, but hey, it's something. Another possibility, you can give her a copy of my books that you yourself won't read. <laughs> but having said that, if you're not in the habit of reading, put aside my books for the moment, although not for long. Buy many copies for everyone you know. But beyond that, get in the habit of reading. Uh, quite apart from the fact that Tumblr House has lots and lots of really good stuff, not just mine, The uh, uh, Death of Democracy comes to mind, a lot of other books. Um, beyond that, everything that is in the um, public domain, almost everything, is online now. So we're, if, you went, if you were going to a, a standard uh, weird university, you would not be able to encounter the great texts of yore. You can now. Yeah. So read, gentlemen, read. I don't have to tell you ladies to read. You're already doing it. Gentlemen, okay. read. Yep. I'll, I'll just make one more point on this uh, without wanting to get too um, uh, dull. But my old late lamented friend, Ray Bradbury, who died six years ago last week, Seven years ago, God help us. Anyway, Ray Bradbury was of the opinion that all the schools of whatever sort that are supported by the government should be shut down, and the money spent on schools should go into libraries instead. Because that was where he had educated himself. To be honest, ladies and gentlemen, that's where I got the bulk of my education. And he felt that schools, the uh, libraries of the universities of the poor and of the wealthy. So he felt that's where the money should go. Read books, gentlemen. Read books. Um, One caveat to this, uh, the disparity between men and women readers is even more pronounced when it comes to fiction. At least three quarters of our of our fiction readers are women, um, and that's why I mean that's why it, it, you'll notice that there are so many uh, uh, genres for specifically for, for women, chick lit, you know, romance. There's not really any men's categories for fiction uh, except maybe like Tom Clancy type stuff, adventures, uh, thrillers. But it's not nearly as big of a market. I mean, it's a giant market for women. Um, that's true. So it's it's interesting. I, I remember when I was writing uh, romance novels under a pseudonym. You go on. Yeah, yeah. I called myself Barbara Cartland. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you wouldn't believe the makeup I had to wear and the feather boas. Wow. I felt like Ed Wood. No, no, I'm not Barbara Cartland. <laughs> if I wish I had her money, I'll tell you. <laughs> but that's, that's the thing. She made a ton of money off that stuff. And romance writing is... Hugely profitable venture. I don't recommend you go into romance writing. That's not my point. But it's bloody difficult to make a living doing other kinds of writing. Trust me. Absolutely. Okay. So moving on. Um, 
shout out to Roger uh, Roger Thomas. Roger Thomas, uh, many of you know, he uh, we published several of his books from afar um, and Under the Watchful Sky. Under the Watchful Sky is the first book in what's becoming a series. Now, he ended, he's going to self-publish the rest of that series. But book two is out, Rising Darkness. Uh, there are a lot of readers for Under the Watchful Sky, and they've been waiting for book two. Book two is out. It's available on Amazon.com. I will put the link in the uh, description for this video. Uh, I've read it. It's very good. I recommend it. Um, it's got some heavy stuff, though. It's got some very heavy stuff. That's uh, the one caveat. But Roger Thomas is an excellent, excellent writer. So, shout out to him. Uh, I have to thank all the patrons. Uh, without you guys, without the gardeners, uh, the secretarial pool, uh, the uh, the mailroom clerks, and of course uh, the top level executive, the top floor executives. You are what make the show possible. Thank you so much. We're 130 bucks away from the next tier, which will uh, which will increase our shows from two shows a month to three shows a month. Um, so we're getting really close. We're getting really close. So you want to ask Charles if you have a question for Charles? Become a patron. One dollar a month. We have some people who've signed up who have a ton of questions. They just signed up for one dollar a month. They've dumped a ton of questions, and we're going to ask a ton of their questions. So it's very much worth it. You get early access uh, to Charles, and uh, yeah, you get you get special privileges. So become a patron if you if you can. All right, on to the questions. First question is from Nicholas Williams. Yeah, Lordly Mister Coulomb, you mentioned the the Malleus Maleficarum in the last episode. Will you please talk about the book and the author, Heinrich Kramer? I have seen. Uh, oh yeah, will you please talk about the author Heinrich Kramer? I've seen it written that the book was condemned for having faulty demonology and that he was discredited. What is the truth about this man and his work? Well, the only thing I know is that it was uh, it was given the approbation by Pope Innocent VIII. Um, that's the one. Yep. And it's Heinrich Kramer and James Springer. There were two of them. Um, mind you, if uh, I've never heard of their being condemned or anything else uh, authoritatively, um, I'd be very happy to look into it if you'd send me something. Um, always welcome to correction. I can tell you this, though, that having read the thing, if anybody did exhibit all the several marks that they insist on which has to have before you can do anything about it. I'd probably burn her myself or him. They're just plain weird. Yeah. Uh, th this book, it's hard to get these books. Uh, you've also referenced Demoniality. Yes. Montague Summer Edition. But these yep. books are actually out of print, and they're pretty heavy stuff. They're really heavy stuff, actually, um, in terms of what they deal with. I'd, I'd be very curious to hear... Um, Father Ripperger's opinion, or well, I guess Father Morth hasn't opined on it, but uh, I'd be interested to see what an exorcist has to say about uh, the content because, yeah, it's really wild stuff. Some of this stuff. Awesome, but um, would you ever think of reprinting it? Uh, potentially, I don't know. It's so intense that you know, it's it's not exactly for everybody. Let's put it that way. Well, no, I wouldn't think so. Uh, yeah. I, I was thinking too more of uh, demoniality than the Maleos. But we'll see. I mean, I, I'll I'll investigate and um, we'll see. But you can get on Amazon uh, used copies 
but no one else is, is printing it, I don't believe, right now. Okay, next question is from Joshua Hernandez. Oh, okay, Joshua. Dear Baby Boomer and Grandpa Millennial. Here we are. By the time you read this, I'll be on pilgrimage with my wife in Italy. One of the shrines we plan on visiting on our trip is the Holy House of Loretto. Charles, can you tell us a bit about the Holy House and its miraculous history? I read the article entry on it in the Catholic Encyclopedia, and it was brutally, it was brutally skeptical about the whole thing, presenting numerous objections and doubts to its authenticity. So what's the story, and what do you think about it all? Well, you know, this is there's a, a little bit of St. John's Eve synchronicity burning into this stuff. Hmm. Because in um, Montague Summers' forward to the Malaya's Malificarum, he includes a huge condemnation of Father Herbert Thurston. Father Herbert Thurston was the man who wrote the article on the Holy House of Loretto in uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia. Wow. And he rips him up. Summers rips up Thurston. He points out that Thurston would always cast out on traditional stories of the saints, etc., was always ready to believe any psychic phenomena or spiritualist tales. So if the the forward to uh the forward to uh Thurston's work uh, to uh, the forward to the Malayos, uh just the section on Thurston's work could be done as a, a pamphlet itself. Mm. It's 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 very useful. Uh, the Holy House was in fact the house over you might say the grotto at Nazareth. Now you've got to you've got to imagine that there was sort of a grotto which was like the almost like the basement and the house was built over it. Yeah. And that's where our lady lived in Nazareth. Now the um the house was in 1291, uh, Acre fell, uh, perhaps it was earlier. Anyway, I forget the dates now, but it was after the fall of the Holy Land. The story goes that angels miraculously moved the uh, Holy House to Croatia. But the area that they moved it to uh, came under Saracen attack. So it moved again to across the Adriatic to, uh, to a place near Reconati. Uh, but that area was infested with robbers, so it was moved one last time by angels to, by angels to yeah. where it is now. Okay. So what do we have to prove this? Well, the people of Loreto had a hard time believing that this thing that suddenly appeared like the house in the Wizard of Oz um, could be what they understood it to be. So they sent people back to Nazareth, and they found that the house was gone. And the measurements were the same as the one they had. The house is constructed out of Palestinian stone. And there are even uh, pilgrims' markings on the interior predating the Crusades. Wait, wait I, I, I'm a little confused. So what do you mean the house was gone? Like, what time period was this? Where, where... Well, about about uh, the time that the house showed up in Loretto. And I forget why so they knew this house. The twelve hundreds. So, okay, so that was uh, a landmark house for for, yeah. for twelve centuries. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, then it and then gone. it just disappeared. And then it's like, oh, Oof. not there anymore. Bye bye. No more. So sad. Bye bye. 
It went away. It went bye bye. Okay, and so okay, so and so the big the biggest trademark is is the is the Palestinian stone. The Palestinian stone plus the the uh, pilgrims' markings at various places inside the house, the sort of markings that were made before the Crusades. What kind of marking? I mean, what is was oh, that? Oh, you know, random things, crosses, and that kind of thing. They can tell by the style that they're done in. Interesting. So, um, couldn't that be forged? Though, I mean, just playing devil's advocate here. I mean, couldn't that be forged? I mean, how is that a, a signature? Not. not it could, they've been there, we know, at least since the 1500s, and they couldn't have forged them then because they wouldn't have known how. Just draw a cross? Uh, no, with a, in a particular way with a particular instrument. They okay. chiseled into the thing, you say. They chiseled into the thing a particular symbol. or Yeah, particular cross and okay. so forth. Now... The uh, the uh, dimensions at Nazareth of where the house was fit this thing completely. Uh, moreover, the uh, place of Croatia, Tursat, is still venerated by the locals as the site where the house rested, as is the other site near Reconati. Uh, people have tried to come up with explanations for this not involving angels one of them being the supposition that it was brought by sea by a family called angelos which they would hope would somehow take away the miraculous element but no i'm afraid the holy house of loretto is a living contradiction to everything in our everyday life and I could see why Father Thurston, who hated miraculous stories of saints at shrines, but did enjoy spiritualist phenomena, would have been dead set against it. Okay, playing devil's advocate a little bit more, wouldn't anyone have seen the house floating as it's traveling? I mean, you would think somebody would have seen it. What, if it were uh, flying at the level uh, an airplane would fly today? I don't know. Is that what it did? We don't know that it did that. No, we don't know how it flew. We just know that it flew. But at some point during this flight, it's going to be close to landing. Like it's going to be within sure. eyesight. Yeah. And so nobody saw it through any of no. these liftoffs. It was, or... just, okay. it was literally just there one day. Okay. The, uh, it landed late at night when no one was around. By the way, all, yeah, sorry. All the places it landed in were fairly desolate. Oh, I see. It's not like it landed. I mean, Loretto is really built up now, but it's built up because of the shrine. Uh, when it landed there, there was nothing. I see. Okay. It's it's not like it's set down in the middle of Times Square at midnight. Yeah. Okay. And incidentally, the, the House of Loretto is one of my favorite miracles. Because uh, it's, as, as we've talked about this before, as you say, because it's one of the most annoying no. for skeptics. It's just, and they've got to come up with anything they can. What if, what if, yeah, what if? Yeah. What if a supersonic, what if aliens came and transmogrified it? Okay. <laughs> what if it became sentient and flew through the air on its own? All right. 
Okay, next, uh, I guess two more questions from Joshua Hernandez. What are some of the different European traditions and folklore surrounding St. John's Eve? And where do they find their origins? Are there any other feast days throughout the year surrounded by similar customs and folklore? Wow, does Joshua Hernandez know you? Joshua, this is scary. (laughs) Where do I begin? (laughs) Well, yes, there are a lot. There's lots and lots and lots of folklore. First, you remember that Saint John's Eve is the eve of the uh, Nativity of Saint John the Baptist, which is June the twenty-fourth. It happens he since he's the patron of the French Canadians, that wonderful, glorious people of whom I have the honor to be one. Um, June twenty-fourth is like Saint Patrick's Day is for the Irish. It's our national day, the Jour de Juin, la Fête Nationale and all that kind of stuff. So uh, if you are French Canadian, be sure when you'll be seeing this on Monday, you'll be sure to have yourself a pretty good stiff uh, bagosse, eh? the best bagosse you ever buy in store you. <laughs> I'm sorry? I, I, I couldn't understand you. You're speaking in Canadian. But no, yeah, I was speaking in English. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That was the way I used to sound me when I was little. But then everything changed, you know, and I had to learn to speak the English so good as I do now, me. <laughs> what? Okay. What? Yeah, great. Perfect English. Yeah, well, that's my dad's English. You know, he was a radio actor. So he wanted me to sound like him, and he succeeded. Mm. Anyway, I, uh, I uh, what's the word? Um, I'm uh, missing my, th- my train of thought. The, Saint, the eve of St. John has a number of traditions connected to it. The most wonderful are the bonfires. All over the Catholic world and the Orthodox world, even St. John brought in bonfires. And there is a ritual for their blessing in the Roman Rituale. And in really Catholic areas, even to this day, the priests will bless the bonfires. That's not all. In some places, they will literally, they'll take wheels and they'll set them afire and roll them down hills. Now, you wouldn't want to be doing that in an L.A. summer. <laughs> yeah. But see, in this part of the world, everything is so lush that nothing's going to catch fire. Okay. That's why it's so humid. Yeah. But I know it's hard to believe uh, where you are, but humid heat is it doesn't give you forest fires unless there's been a drought or something. Anyway... So the fires are a big part of it, but there are also the uh, what they call uh, Johanneskreuter in German. They have other words for it in other other languages, but there are particular herbs that are uh, help against evil that uh, people gather on this night. One of which is Saint John's Wort. Ah, yes. So you could make your tea, and it's really disgusting. I've had some. It's I. Uh, I would. It's probably better to hang them up in bunches outside your door to drive off evil than to actually drink the tea. Hmm. Put it to better use. Uh, yarrow is another one that they use. I forget the 12. Then there's another interesting thing that they believe. On St. John's Eve, the fern flower blooms and the fern seeds are available. Now, the problem is that they're only available at midnight. So you got to nick them quick or they're gone. But 
If you have fern seeds, you could become invisible. And that's not all. As the people like to say in the States on Halloween, the veil between the worlds is very thin on St. John's Eve. And so you might see the elves or the dead or God knows what, ghosts. And witches like to do their shtick. And there's all sorts of fun stuff going on in St. John's Eve. So the other question he had was, are there other nights of the year like this? Oh, you betcha. You betcha. After this one, uh, if we, presuming we survive St. John's Eve, and maybe we shall, then comes the night of July 31st, which is, don't be shocked, the night before August 1st. Right. Lammas Eve. Lammas. Okay. Yes. August 1st being Lammas Day, the Feast of St. Peter in Chains in the traditional calendar. And it was the day, the name Lammas does not come from lambs, as you might think, but from loaf. It was the day that the very first harvest would be brought in from the fields, and they would make a loaf of bread, and that would be taken to the church to be blessed after Mass. So it was called the Loaf Mass in Anglo-Saxon, which turned into Lammas. Hmm. And Lammas Eve was a, a weird night like that, too. But wait, we're not done with the catalog of the weird. We have not yet begun to find. Wait, wait, how was Lammas Eve weird? What's the spooky part? It was like St. John's Eve. I mean, the same sorts of stories, except they didn't have bonfires. Oh, okay. Uh, the Celtic name for it was, uh, well, I don't know how it was pronounced, Gaelic stuff. Never looks like it's, been, like it's written. But it's, uh, it's they called Lammas Lugmasa or something. And that, of course, was in was August the 1st. The next feast of this kind, the Eve of All Saints, Halloween. I don't really need to go into any detail about Halloween, do I? No, I didn't think so. That'll come up later. But, but, beyond Halloween, you're in pretty good territory. Pretty safe. Why Christmas is coming. Now, the funny thing, though, is that in uh, most of the Western traditions, Christmas Eve was a time free of this kind of thing. But it so happens that in, in the Eastern Rites, they told weird tales about uh, Christmas Eve. And there is in England a long-time custom of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Uh, hence the line in the song, uh, there'll be sta scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful so, yeah, time of year. I, I, I was just, is that really a lyric in that? It really is. Scary ghost, gosh. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. I'm surprised I've never caught, I've never caught that before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you remember, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight takes place at Christmas. Hmm. Okay. And, of course, there were all sorts of interesting traditions, like the animals being able to speak and that kind of thing. So Christmas Eve, although it's much more uh, benevolent, it has its share of the strange. 
The next such night is the night of February the 1st, Candlemas Eve, mm. which is another weird. Uh, apparently, eves of masses, Miss Eves, a lot of them are kind of strange this way. Well, then we, we fast forward from February the 2nd. March is fairly free of this kind of fall roll, probably because of Easter. But then in April, St. Mark's Eve, the Eve of St. Mark. Now, I should say St. George's Eve, which is the night of April 22nd, in the Balkans is considered to be the vampire night. Okay. But the vampires, but the vampires fight each other. They don't. They don't. They're not more more likely to go after the living. They they fight each other at crossroads. So the locals tend to stay away from crossroads late at night on St. George's Eve. St. Mark's Eve has a strange tradition concerned with it, and that is that if you go into the churchyard about midnight, you go on the church porch and you look at the at the churchyard, the graveyard, you'll see the images of everyone who's going to die in the coming year. On what? On the... Uh, St. Mark's Eve. No, but on, like, where will you see the images? If you stand in the po in the porch of the church, looking at the churchyard, you'll see the images of everyone who's going to be laid to rest that year. Just floating in the sky? What do you mean? No, no, they'll be walking along in a sort of procession. Wow. I've never seen it. I've never even gone to a church on St. Mark's Eve. I'm just telling you what they say. Okay. And then, and then, there's another one. Only a few days later. April 30th, Valpurgisnacht. <laughs> May Eve. Another bonfire thing. But in Central Europe, Valpurgisnacht is very important because it's believed that all the witches of Central Europe gather together and have theirs, which is Sabbath on the Brocken in the Hartz Mountains. There's a scene of Goethe's Faust that's set there. And so, what do they do, do you think, with the idea that the sky is literally filled with witches on broomsticks going to the Brocken? What do you think they would do in response? Oh, well, have a bonfire, I guess. Get the exactly. Yeah, okay. Kind of derail them if they can, maybe bring them down. <laughs> The uh, and they wear masks and all that, a lot of Halloweeny type stuff. So, I think that uh, that of course brings us right back to where we are now. Wow, thank you for that, Charles. That was quite a treat. Yeah, you got through the weird year. <sighs> okay, all right. Uh, next or last question from Joshua Hernandez. Yes. I often hear it said that the church in the Middle Ages didn't really believe in the existence of witches or sorcerers, and that this only changed in the 15th century after Pope Innocent VIII uh, issued the bull Sumis Desiderantes Affectibus, which specifically dealt with the issue. I'm aware that magic and sorcery became a sort of obsession for many people during the Renaissance and so-called Age of Enlightenment. But what was the church's attitude towards such things during the medieval period, and how common was it? Well, it depended, because there would be sort of eruptions from, from here to there. It's not true to say the church did not believe in witchcraft. It did. Uh, 
Don't forget, it's for the Jewish scriptures we get the phrase, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And in fact, there isn't a culture on earth that doesn't have a some idea of witchcraft, that is to say, a person who sells his or her soul or whatever they consider to be the principle of supernatural evil in return for preternatural powers. And usually these people get dealt with very badly. This is true in Greece and Rome. It's true today in China and amongst pagan tribes in South Africa. Um, it's a universal constant in human cultures. Uh, as our Amazon Synod friends will find out, I sure hope that the indigenous tribes don't get the idea that the old Spanish nun who believes in uh, priestesses is a witch. They'll burn her. But anyway, and then they'll find out just how wonderful indigenous practices can really be. <laughs> what? Anyway. Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. Hey, what are you doing? Why are you taking me away? You are a witch. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I just said that women should be priests too. Aha, convicted. <laughs> bring, bring the herbs. We shall stuff her mouth with herbs. I don't want any herbs. They are organic. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't mean to nitpick, Charles, but I don't know if that was an Amazonian accent. <laughs> well, it probably wasn't, frankly. But. At any rate, I, I, I couldn't even begin to do an Amazonian accent. Yeah, I don't know what that would sound like, but yeah. I don't know. Between one, one cannibal uh, taking a bite out of another, <laughs> who knows what they sound like. Anyway, okay. so the, the long and the short of it is that uh, there would be from time to time, just as there were eruptions of heresy, there were eruptions of witchcraft. But it's quite true to say that uh, it was nothing like what came in with the Renaissance, and more particularly toward the end of the Reformation. If I were to offer a theory as to why this would be, it would be because that was the time that the church was losing her grip on the spirituality of Europe. Hmm. And so what do you think happened? But the other thing you've got to bear in mind, too, is that from at the time of the Renaissance to the present, uh, very often men of science have had a weird attraction to the weird. Uh, with the with the growth of 19th century uh, scientificism, you had a growth of interest in spiritualism and theosophy. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, for instance, who was trained as a uh, scientificist and whose who's mentor in, in medicine, Joseph Bell, was the model for Sherlock Holmes and like Sherlock Holmes, a complete unbeliever in anything, which, which Doyle, by the way, was not. Hmm. Doyle was a flaming spiritualist, a member of the Society for Psychic Research, the Ghost Club, all this sort of thing. Hmm. He was fascinated with all this stuff. He, he fell away from the church as soon as he left home, but he got into all this other stuff. Uh, and then the character that made him wealthy was a complete unbeliever and a scientificist. So, uh, similarly, uh, Jack Parsons, who you probably better know as the founder of uh, JPL, wow. uh, the, the rocket man, 
Uh, he was also a great practitioner of Crowleyite black magic. Uh, and after uh, he, he took on a young partner who uh, shared everything with him, including his wife, uh, whom he took with him, that young partner was named L. Ron Hubbard. And he was Are the founder serious? of Scientology. I am. And he was the founder of Scientology. All of this in Pasadena, your own neck of the woods. Well, you wonder what happened to Jack Parsons? I'll tell you. He blew himself up in his uh, in his garage, but to this day it was an experiment. But to this day, no one knows if it was a scientific or a magical experiment. Well, what does that mean? I mean, the debate surely doesn't play itself out in that uh, on those terms. Actually, it does. Really? Yeah. Well, what's why is magic? an open consideration on this because he was a practitioner of the dark arts and of the very darkest sort so what killed him chemicals or a demon a demon blew him up maybe <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that kind of thing happened i wasn't there i don't know wow okay elron wow man that's Telling some strange tales tonight, Charles. St. John's Eve is coming on. Gosh. We best all hide out. In fact, what I would do, St. John's Eve, I uh, I would uh, have everyone go home early and I'd lock up the elevator. <laughs> of course. Uh, okay, uh, follow-up question to this one, a uh, sub-question. Uh, what caused such a dramatic shift in people's attitudes with regard to the subject during the early modern period? Why the sudden interest in magic and the occult, especially considering the fact that this historical era is supposed to mark Europeans' transition from ignorance and superstition to rationality and science? Great question. Well, rationality and science have a lot in common with superstition and ignorance. Um, they're all based on things that are not necessarily true. That is to say, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know that some years ago, this lady, Mary, I forget her last name, she did something that had never been done before. She broke open a Tyrannosaurus thigh bone and discovered to her shock and horror that it was filled with organic matter, goo. Well, there are a lot of problems with this. Uh, fossilization isn't supposed to work like that from the outside in. It's supposed to be a, a steady thing. Um, organic matter isn't supposed to last more than a few hundred thousand years or a million tops, uh, not, not however long since the Tyrannosaurus walked the earth, unless of course they walked the earth a lot more recently. So what do you get out of this? You get out of it that we don't know what fossilization is. We don't know how long it takes. We don't know anything about anything. As you could imagine. She was attacked brutally. Eventually, because enough people kept discovering the same thing, breaking open bones that had never, or, or uh, uh, x-raying bones that had never been examined that way before, it turns out this is a fairly common phenomenon. So the attacks on Mary stopped. Science at the moment, paleontology at the moment, refuses to look at the implications 
then I can understand because the implications are scary. They mean that we don't know what we think we know. Nobody likes that. Yeah, they don't like to question. Um... Oh, well, who does? Because think of everything we've based, the entire structure of thought, of scientific thought, that's based upon the idea that we know what fossilization is and that we know for certain how to date things. If we don't know that, then we don't know anything we think we know. I don't understand why that lady was attacked. I mean, she just discovered it. She just accidentally discovered this, and this thing happened. And she, she didn't put forth forth a, uh, a thesis or anything no. or, or a theory. It's just like, oh, oops, this happened. Oh, no. So I don't understand why she would be attacked. She didn't do anything. Oh, yes, she did. She uh, introduced uncertainty. In another day, she at the time, she'd been burned as a witch. <laughs> At least by scientists. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, I still don't understand what there is to attack. Like, no, this didn't happen. No, you falsified it. Well, that was the first it. reaction. That was the first reaction. And then it turned out not only did it, not did it happen, but it's a not uncommon occurrence. And that it's very upsetting. Now, uh, the period when the church really began to lose its grip on the... Uh, intellectual minds of Europe was indeed that period when both scientificism on the one hand and occultism on the other began to really jump up. Uh, in the early 19th century, they spoke of the occult revival in Europe, which was at the same time that they were making so many scientific breakthroughs. And for the same reason, with the, with the, the truth of the faith, sort of shadowed or withdrawn someone, a big vacuum opened. What's going to fill that vacuum? Stuff. 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 And as G.K. Chesterton put it very, very well, when man uh, will not believe in God, it's not that he believes in nothing. It's that he'll believe in anything. And as I say, over the course of the 19th century, I mentioned theosophy and, and all that, but gosh, New Thought, Christian Science, Mormonism, Spiritualism I touched on. All this stuff came in an endless stream, especially in America. Uh, I mean, we've been creating weird sects since the Puritan days. Uh, we just started cranking them out for the mid-19th century on. You know, every time you turned around, there was a weird something, a temple of light yeah. or, or something of this sort. The... Um, uh, you remember the the uh, the great line, uh, uh, the the temple that taught brain breathing, the secret of the Aztecs. The uh, what what happened to it in America is that the center of weird religiosity started with the Puritans in New England, which is understandable because the God of the Calvinists was obnoxious and annoying, so people sought all kinds of alternatives some of which were pretty diabolical, literally. But then, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, the center of the weird creation of cults moved from New England and environs to the Midwest, around Chicago and places like that. And there it sat just for a couple of decades, 
At about the 1880s, 1890s, it found fairer, more fertile ground, where it's been ever since. Can you guess where that is? That golden land of opportunity for every psychic and swami under the sun? California? Ah! Southern California, SoCal. You betcha. We got us more temples of light than you can shake a stick at. We got us more deities than, than MGM has stars in their lot. The uh, We got it all, you ladies and gentlemen. You need a deity, we got it. It's great. We got L. Ron Hubbard even. We got the whole thing. We have Scientology. We have we have the Golden Dawn. We have we have every imaginable variety of Eastern religion. We we have Wicca. We 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 have Theosophy, of course, Anthroposophy. Ladies and gentlemen, if it's weird, we got it. Scientology that that was big in Hollywood too. You had a lot of I think like Nick Cage, John Travolta. You had a lot of Scientologists. That Tom Cruise. Oh, excuse me, Tom Cruise, of course. Who could forget? The, the, the king of the Scientologists. Well, see, what a lot of these things, and Scientology is a good example, offer is being in touch with spiritual realms without having to work for it through trying to lead a moral life. I mean, one of the great ways the devil has always attracted us is the idea of being spiritual being in touch with the spirit realm, whatever that might be, without having to worry about any nasty old rules and morals. Hence, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Mm. Well, what does that mean? It means I feel in touch with something beyond, but I don't have to stop sleeping around. In fact, I can incorporate sleeping around into my religion and make it a temple prostitute sort of thing. I'm not exaggerating. No, uh, I know. I, I, I wish I were. I, I was just laughing at the walk. It was like a, it was like Frankenstein or something. Well, I, I'm just radiating whatever I'm radiating. <laughs> God. Okay. It's so sad, really. Yeah. I mean, well, it, it reminds me of that great theologian, P.T. Barnum. There's a sucker born every minute? What? No, that's not what he see. People, this is what I hate. People always mishear it. He said, there's a seeker born every minute. <laughs> no. I told you he was a theologian. <sighs> okay. You never heard that? There's a seeker born every minute? I've never heard that before, Charles. What did the Zen masters say to the hot dog salesman? Make me one with everything. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, next two questions are from Sylvain Duran. Oh, Monsieur Sylvain, comment ça va? Yeah, good to see you again, Mr. Duran. Uh, it's been a while since we've asked some questions from him okay he says greetings fellow papists i have a question yeah. concerning the castrados those children singers which were ca castrated before puberty in order for them to retain their singing voice i hear the practice continued until rather late the last one dying in 1922 
Not only does this smack of child abuse, but isn't it also in contradiction with the church's teaching on contraception? Castrated men can't procreate, after all. I would think so. I'm sure they had some justification or other for it, but it's not something I approve of. Um, but it seems, um, given the, the uh, general leadership level in the church today, that perhaps the practice of making castrati didn't end. What are you suggesting, Charles? About what? About the church leadership. Nothing. I just noticed. You're suspect. What's that? You're suspect right now. No, I'm just, I'm just saying. You know, maybe the practice didn't end. I'm not saying that. Uh, oh, I'm. Oh, oh, I see where you're going with this. You're, you're, you're implying that I'm claiming that the problem is that the church leadership are castrati. I would never say that. Never. You'd think that, though. My thoughts are my own. <laughs> my words belong to the world. I'm reporting you the proper authorities. I'm calling the thought police right now. Yeah, well, tell them to meet me on the 13th floor. I'll be waiting. <laughs> <laughs> you can't hide there forever, Charles, with you and the ghosties. Who says they're ghosts? Okay, fairies, whatever. Yeah, you're I don't know what fairies. they are. Okay. All I know is that IRS man didn't come back. <laughs> you know, All right, what you, else you, you know, you know, it could be a, it could be a, a midnight in Paris situation. You know, like the, uh, the where they <laughs> oh. they get transported, and the one guy got transported so far back to the French monarchy. <laughs> but see, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He'd be in the. He'd be in Arcadia in seventeen ninety. What's he going to go to the mission? That's true. It's about all he could do there. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't think of anything more unpleasant. You know, Arcadia in 1790. Great. 1890 would be different. That's when Arcadia was fun town. Yeah. I went to the Arcadia Museum. Ah. I, Lucky Baldwin. Boy, yeah. That's, that's an interesting guy. He... I mean, California was shaped after him in his image, to be honest. He was a wild, a lot of a wild guy. I'll say, and notice, too, that uh, St. Cecilia Street and St. Joseph's, those were the wild, be the beating heart of Arcadia in those days. Yeah. That's where the beer gardens were and the gambling halls, and the hotels and the restaurants and the bear baiting thing. I didn't see that in the museum, the bear baiting yeah, no, you wouldn't have done, but they had one. What, they fishing for bears? I mean, what 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 does that mean? Oh no, they'd have a bear fight. Um, oh, bear. different animals. <laughs> okay, interesting. Well, don't tell the PETA people about that one. I no. think you know. I think if you if you want really wanted to ruin PETA, magically transport them about a hundred years into the past, they'd be like, oh. I mean, that would be as unkind as yanking a bunch of people out of a safe space at Harvard and dumping them in the Boston of uh, 1850. You know, they'd be like, oh, my heavens, oh, I'm so triggered. Oh, it's awful. Okay. Anyway, next, what else we got? Next question from Mr. Durand. My question is about temperaments. Have you noticed? I'm all for them. Have you noticed how much they affect how people respond to the gospel? 
Some seem to be simply impervious to spiritual concepts. It's not that they are inherently bad or anything. Religion just doesn't seem to make any sense to them. Others, on the other hand, are very spiritual, but also incredibly gullible. The kind who would be the first to line up at the shrine of Our Lady of Irwindale. Hey! Nice reference. I'd there. be all for it if I got paid. Are we to be saved or damned because of the way our brain is wired? Not to be deterministic, but it gives the impression that some begin with a few strikes against them, while others would only happen on the right religion by sheer luck. Well, firstly, there's no such thing as luck, number one. Number two, there is such a thing as goodwill and badwill. And our temperaments ultimately do not determine our will. They have an effect on it, but uh, the same, I mean, you'll find very, like look at Louis Pasteur. He was not the sort of man you would think would become a sort of religious zealot, but he was. Why? Because he applied to religion the same simple, clear, sharp thinking he applied to science. In other words, the mental tools he already had, he applied the right way. Similarly, you'll find many gullible people uh, among scientists. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle comes to mind. Uh, we've just been dealing with him. And of course, the, the, uh, the people went after Mary, what's her name? Very gullible people, although hardly spiritual. Uh, I, I, I don't believe that to be true at all. I believe that we're each of us given a series of... of advantages uh, to assist us and flaws to overcome in the uh, in the quest for heaven and part of achieving that quest is overcoming those difficulties and strengthening those abilities but they're different for each of us um, I mean what appears to be an imperviousness to spirituality can also be a lot of other things it could be self-satisfaction I don't need anything. I've already got me. It could just be laziness, sloth. I understand that completely. That being my favorite of the seven deadly sins. Um, it could be a number of things. I mean, you've got to remember that none of us can really read another person. Only God can do that. Uh, and what appears like, I mean, you could turn around. How many times do people seem to act completely out of any relationship? to what you considered to be their psychological type. And frankly, although there are some people who are quote unquote suicidal, there are a huge number of suicides that after they happen, everyone sort of scratches their head and never saw it coming. You know, uh, so-and-so is the last person you'd expect to commit suicide. You had everything going for him. Why would he do that? Well, unless he left a note, we don't know, except that he's dead and apparently at his own hand. So uh, my, my problem with answering the question is that I can't accept its premise. What's the premise? I... That these things, uh, well, basically, despite the uh, Sylvain's denial, it is basically deterministic that your temperament uh, is ultimately responsible for what you believe or don't believe. I do not believe that at all. Hmm. It's your will. Good will or bad will. Good will 
is the desire for truth. Bad will is the desire for self, for what pleases me over what may be true. Interesting. And, I mean, taking my favorite sin again as an example, sloth, or if I'm too lazy to examine the claims of the church, which would be very, very easy for me, um, that's not a meritorious act. That's an exercise of one of the seven deadly sins. But that's not the only time I've ever done it. I've done it with a ton of other stuff, too. So it's not like it's that one thing alone. Right. It's the totality, you say. Okay. Uh, last question for today. Okay. What are Charles's thoughts on the historicity of Atlantis? Well, that's a very good question. When I was young, uh, we lived there. Uh, no? No, you didn't, Charles. Oh, all right. I guess I didn't. No, what do I think of the historicity of Atlantis? Well, I don't know. Could be true. No, I'm not going to do that. I, I told you I wasn't, and I won't. I'm not going to answer any weird question this evening because it's so close to St. John's Eve with that kind of toss-off. I'm not going to do it. I think the real question beyond Atlantis is that of an antediluvian civilization, that is to say, a civilization before the flood. Atlantis is often seen as an explanation for several archaeological and historical anomaly. Now, the story of Atlantis comes to us, of course, from Plato. And he relates the tale of Solon going down to Egypt and being told about this island by an Egyptian who was very wise and knew all sorts of stuff. Certainly, it is an image, an idea of the, the perfect place, or at least it started out perfect, that was ruined and sank beneath the sea, possibly because of its own sinfulness or stupidity. It could have happened. It absolutely could have happened. Uh, some people say that it was really the Minoan civilization that succumbed to a tremendous explosion. Others agree with uh, uh, the commonly received idea that it was out in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere, and they point to various ruins in different places as proof of it. Um, I don't know, and I, I actually don't have an opinion, but as you know, my, my feeling with all of these sorts of things is that where there's so much smoke, there must be some kind of fire. It's interesting that there were a group of Catholic philologists and historians and so on in the last century in France who were great believers that Atlantis might very well have been the source of all sorts of uh, things and did a lot of study, put a lot of study into it. And at the same time, I must say that uh, when I was a boy in 60s Hollywood, there was a very popular author called Colonel James Churchward. Now, Colonel Churchward had already been dead for about 30 years, so his books were popular, not him. But he came up with the idea of a lost continent in the Pacific that he called Mu, M-U, and declared that this was the motherland where mankind had originated. But he also believed in Atlantis, the big 
lost continent of the Pacific, the big lost continent of the Atlantic. And that uh, these, when these two places had sunk, Mu first and then later Atlantis, the various civilizations we know of, the Aztecs, the Incas, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Chinese, etc. Um, but these were all colonies, remnants of these lost civilizations. And then instead of being, as we think of them, the beginning of our civilization, which they, they were in a sense, but they were in reality the last outposts of lost Atlantis or lost Mu or both. Um, Mu seems a bit far-fetched, but the idea that our earliest civilizations that we know of were the last remnants of a uh, an earlier civilization that was perhaps even as advanced as our own. Who knows? And again, I don't know how much truth there is to it, but in the 1960s and 70s, a man called Eric von Deniken and a host of imitators came up with the uh, chariots of the gods, gods of outer space, etc., which adduced a lot of archaeological anomalies and so on. Um, how much truth there was to them, I don't know. Like the, the story of an aluminum belt being found in an ancient Chinese tomb. Well, so far as we know, you can't, you couldn't have aluminum until the 19th century. Uh, so if such a thing really happened, it brings up a huge problem. Now, to the degree that there's any truth in these things, rather than aliens from outer space, the idea that there are remnants or bits and pieces of a advanced civilization that fell for whatever reason before the beginning of our era, who knows? And that might have been Atlantis, possibly. Or all of it's been misread and none of it's true. Well, maybe that. I don't know. One of the authors we published, Solon Schertz, is very big on Atlantis. But the evidence she cites is a little frustrating to me because she cites uh, a, an obscure French scientist uh, named Fernand Crumbet. And yeah. his, his works are only in French, so I can't verify this myself. Uh, but he apparently knew hieroglyphics very well. And, and so he read all these Egyptian hieroglyphics. And apparently he said that the uh, same event that created the parting of the Red Sea, the same event that created that, sunk Atlantis. Um, that, and that, that is the theory that Atlantis was actually in, uh, in the Greek islands. It's interesting. Um and, and that may be true. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know either. Um, I mean, I certainly, let's put it this way. It's not something I'm emotionally invested in one way or the other. Okay, so, yeah, me neither. Uh, but, so two two questions. In our, let's unpack this a little more. Let's unpack this a little more. Um, so, what is the Atlantic Ocean named after? Uh, Atlantis. A fictional city? Yeah. Isn't that... I mean, is it really? Are you joking? No. See, how could how could it be named after a fictional city? Well, because Plato, because Plato declared that it was beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which are Gibraltar and Tangier. And... 
that ocean out there is the Atlantic. Yeah, that was my next question. What 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 are references to uh, Atlantis existing? Uh, so other than Plato, that's are your... there? That's the main one. Is Plato? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Interesting stuff. Well, you know, again, I mean, I'd, I'd much rather um, I'd much rather dance around the the fire on St. John's Eve than speculate about this kind of thing. But uh, this is part of the great conglomeration of the weird that has been dominating this evening's broadcast. Yeah. Speaking of it's it's spooky. Speaking of weird, I. I once again forgot to skip the memes and dreams segment of the show of the show, which is usually in the beginning. It's at the end now, but I remembered. I remembered we because we have a very special memes and dreams segment, very special. Uh, I showed Charles the picture uh, yesterday, and he was very pleased. But I'm going to bring it up on the screen for everybody. Uh, and it is uh, for those of you listening to uh, us uh, the podcast and can't see the screen says on the top, when you legitimately do your best to argue that monarchy is the best uh, or least worst form of government, but everybody just dismisses you as a LARPer. And it's a picture of Dexter from Dexter's Laboratory. He's crying, and he's got a, a picture of Charles, a very tasteful picture of Charles with a, with a tumbler glass, and Dexter saying, I have failed you. I have failed you. Well... Firstly, I, I made a response to that when I showed when I saw it on uh, Twitter. Mm -hmm. What I said was, "You haven't failed. Your audience has failed. I absolve you." <laughs> you... <laughs> and them, I sentenced to have what they've got. <laughs> oh, I like that. All powerful, all powerful. That's... The ability to absolve and to punish. That's right. <laughs> Just in these hands. You, you're in the clear. You will have a president and a Congress and a Supreme Court that will squeeze you dry of every drop of life and love. <laughs> of course, the great thing is now you've got someone to blame for their doing it instead of yourself. So that's good. Yeah, so... Uh, this was posted on Twitter by a gentleman named Nick. Thank you so much, Nick. This was really fun, really tasteful. Uh, anyone else want to do more memes? Uh, make a good meme. I'm not going to accept any trashy meme, okay? This was a very, very good meme. This was it was really well fun. made. Yeah, well made. So thank you for that again, Nick. Okay. It was uh, Nick, you're really Chad at this. Oh, oh, wow. Those pop, those pop culture references from Charles... Chad, everyone's just giggling to themselves like a bunch of cucks right now. Uh, Chad, uh, Charles knows what Chad means. Yes, I do. I'm not that becucked. <laughs> that was last week. Wow, I actually didn't. I actually didn't know you. You knew that word. That's pretty impressive, Charles. Chad and Virgin, yeah. Yeah, I know them both. Yeah, and I know that the one is, although it should be a, t a term of approbation, it isn't, and the other that should be kind of a well, I mean Chad of course is someone who goes to the country club and doesn't mind you knowing about it at least that's what it would have been in my time mm -hmm. now so. now the Chad of my time in today 
let's just say the chat of my time would have considered himself to be what the chat of today is. Okay. <laughs> yes, I really am wonderful. Uh... It's true. And you know me, Chad Hargrove III. Perhaps you knew my father, Chad Hargrove Jr. He owns everything here. Yeah? Interesting. <laughs> and do perhaps you my knew my grandfather, Chad Hargrove I. He founded this town. And we have long-term rents. I'm sure you're living on Hargrove family property, even as we speak. Do you like my car? You should. You're paying for it. Right, <laughs> 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 <Why not> Witty. <laughs> Wow. Well, thank you for that, Charles, for that characterization. Um, oh, you're very welcome. Uh, any, any, anytime, uh, anytime you like, feel free to come by Hargrove Heights. Oh, are you Catholic by any chance? Oh, I have nothing against Catholics. Some of our gardeners are Catholic. Wonderful people. Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> okay. Oh, they are, they are. And Clancy, the chauffeur, marvelous man. I don't know. I mean, I was coming home late for, with Dizzy Dupont one night for the club. I couldn't drive. And I called Clancy. He was there in 12 minutes flat. I mean, there's no one like the Irish for servants. It's absolutely <laughs> true. They are wonderful people. I love them. Wow. I, I'm caught off guard by this one because uh, – I've heard a lot of characters from you, uh, but I've never heard this character from you before. Oh, really? Well, it's another bit of perhaps of what you, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, mackerel snappers <laughs> would uh, would call, I suppose, St. John's Eve. It's a touch of magic, don't you know? <laughs> At any rate, it's, it's, it's really wonderful to be here with you all on this enchanted evening. And I, I use that term quite lightly. Ah, it's wonderful. I must be getting back now. Dizzy and the gang are waiting for me at the club. But to each and all here, remember that Chad sends blessings. Goodbye now. Golly, I, I feel like having corned beef and cabbage or something. Okay, you've... How close to real life is that? What percentage to real life people? Well... Older real life people. How close? Fifty percent? Eighty percent? Ninety percent? About sixty-five, seventy. <laughs> okay. Okay. Wow, that was good. Okay, shall we move on to the book? All right. What 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 book you got? We got a book from an obscure uh, French Canadian author. Every man today oh. call Rome. By My first child. Yes, Charles Coulomb. This is the book that put Charles on the map. Uh, how old were you when you when you wrote this book, Charles? I was twenty four. Wow. And gentlemen, and I say gentlemen because I've been told how pitifully small our female audience is. Gentlemen, this book I wrote for you when I was one. That's right. When I was one of you, going through what you're going through this very moment, I wrote this book for us. Me as I was then and, and my uh, my peers. You now. I, um... Yeah, you know, what? so you're, uh, 
you know, a go-getter. You're going to take on the world naively, idealistic. You know, you're going to change the world by just telling the truth. Crusader mentality. With my pen. With your da -da, pen. Da -da. The pen. The pen is mightier than the sword. That's right. And now, now, like everyone else, you're just sort of jaded and I'm, cynical. I'm an old sellout. <laughs> no, uh, that's not entirely true, actually. I may be jaded, but I'm not cynical. Mm. And the, the truth of the matter is, I still believe that telling the truth has a power of its own. For you, firstly, because to reaffirm the truth is to strengthen it in your own heart. For those who hear you, whether they agree with you or they don't. And for those who punish you. It has an effect on everyone. So, I can well say that um, in rereading the book, as I did a couple of years ago, I wouldn't change anything. The older and wiser Charles may be older, but he's not wiser. Yeah, you really vent on a lot of things. I think a lot of people can relate. Um, you know, you're frustrated with a lot of things, and... Just, well, and, the zeal, and also, the, the zeal just pours out of you in this one. Well, and I've often had people say to me, why aren't you like that now? And my answer is because I'm not 24 now. Yeah, you mellowed out. I don't know if mellowed is exactly what I would use. The thing is that if you're going to go for the long haul, you've got to save your energy. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Hey, you've gotta, otherwise, you're going to burn out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And something I learned in journalism from, of all people, a fellow called Jeff Dietrich, who runs the LA Catholic Worker to this day and has been running it since the 60s. Now, stop and think. Running a soup kitchen in downtown LA every day dealing with the down and out since 1967 and never seeing improvement, if anything, seeing things get worse. So I asked him about 20 years ago, how it is he didn't burn out. And he said something I've never forgotten. He said, if you do this kind of thing, and by this kind of thing, I don't just mean running a soup kitchen, but doing whatever apostolate the faith calls you to, whatever it may be, whether it's fighting for the faith or helping the poor or some combination of the two, like the Knights of Malta used to be until they lost their grandmaster. Um, if... You do this sort of thing because you think you're going to make a difference. You'll burn out. If, on the other hand, you do it because it's what God wants you to do, it's what he made you to do, like breathing and eating, then you will persevere. I don't think, actually, ladies and gentlemen, that I have lost my zeal. I do think I've learned how to harness it for the long haul. But it was definitely necessary when I was that age that I have the level that I had the level of zeal I had, and that's the important thing. Since most of you listening to me now are under the age of thirty-five, I may have said this before, but I'll say it again. Bears repeating: you're filled probably with a great deal of zeal right now, a great deal of righteous anger, a great deal of zip and energy. And that's good. You should go out feeling that you can conquer the world. Because if you do, 
you may not really conquer the world, but you go a long way toward accomplishing what God has in mind for you to accomplish. Uh, if you were to approach life the way someone my age would, you'd accomplish nothing. So use that zeal, draw your swords, lower your lances with the fluttering banners. Drive into the tournament of life as hard as ever you can. You're going to get knocked around. You'll receive some blows. And that'll continue as long to your my age and beyond, as long as you live. But the further you go in the first flash of your youth and zeal, well, the further ahead you'll be when it comes time to uh, consolidate and move forward in a more measured manner. Don't burn out gentlemen don't burn out don't despair don't expect to see immediate changes from your work because you never will but strike as though you were going to or as a very old lady said to me once pray as if everything depended upon God and work as though everything depended upon you hmm you mentioned the long haul. Uh, we've never talked about this, so it's kind of it's going to require a dissection on my part of your method. How oh. I've inferred from your method that you don't believe there's going to be much change during your life, and that the real power that you have, the real impact you can make, is by forming, helping form the next generation, and they can are going to be the ones where there can be big change. So I've always figured, like, I don't think you actually expect change during your lifetime. Am I, am I totally wrong on this or somewhat close? No, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, also, it's not entirely conscious and has not been entirely conscious on my part. It's just that, you know, as you go through life, things change ever so slightly. But they keep changing ever so slightly. And then one day you wake up and, my gosh, it's a decade and a half since this and that. You're here when you were there and so forth. Now, um, I don't expect any major change, but I've already seen quite a few. Since that book was written, communism fell. The Tridentine Mass became freely acceptable, available in my part of the world anyway. Um, gay marriage came in. Uh, abortion became sacramental, the whole gender confusion thing. I mean, since the, the boy who wrote that book had no idea of what the next 45 years, 35 years, 35 years held. Um, and now at the grand old age of 58, if I would live another 35 years, which is very hard for me to believe, I'd be 93, which is younger than my grandfather when he died, so maybe I'll make it. But uh, I do expect there'll be a great deal of change in that time, but I don't, I don't know of what kind. I don't know if I'll see it. You know, I've, I've had friends my age popping off right and left recently. It's it's a classmate of mine from Northridge just uh, bought it a couple of weeks ago. A massive uh, heart attack at his restaurant. 
Italian fellow from Porchester, New York. Anyway, um, but they've, they've just been, been popping off. And my, my father used to say, when you get to a certain age, it's like uh, playing a game of Ten Little Indians. Uh, the, first this one's gone, then that one's gone, then the other one's gone, then the other one, and then one day it's you. <laughs> and I will say also that, as an example, the man who taught me how to write at New Mexico Military Institute, Mr. Carl Van Horn, was my age exactly when I first met him. My age now. And we were born on the same day, November the 8th. Wow. Uh, this is born in 1921. Or no, he was born in 1920. That's right. So he was exactly 40 years older than me. So if Mr. Van Horn were alive now, he'd be 98. Hmm. So I mentioned all this because, yeah, my, my, my supposition is that uh, whatever it is I gots to give, I gots to get it out before I pop off. And that that will be the part I'll play. I don't know, of course, if that's true. Uh, I, could, I could pop off tomorrow, in which case, whatever we got out there is what we got. Or I could live quite a long time and perhaps even take a small part as far as infirmity would allow me in the events of the day. But I have no control over that. You know, I used to dream of contributing to the end of communism. It did it without my help. Hmm. And I didn't do anything to bring back the Tridentine Mass other than to pray hard for it. Uh, same for the beatification of Emperor Carl, whom I'm writing about right now. These are all things I wanted desperately. And they all happened. And yet the world is still in worse shape than I remember. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a game of blind man's buff you do the best you can you do what your duty requires out of you and you just keep doing it mm. and then one day you wake up and you see your dad staring at you from out of your uh, bathroom mirror you wonder how he got in there Okay, um, well, that somewhat leads into one of the quotes I wanted to touch on in the book, one of my favorite quotes in the book, uh, which is, you say, we're going to spend more time dead than alive. Sure. And so we owe it to ourselves to do the math on this thing. You know, if we haven't sorted out our spiritual life, our religious beliefs or whatever, you owe it to yourself. Because you're going to be dead longer, much longer than you're going to be alive. That's for sure. And you know, gentlemen, of course, the ghosts gather around this close to St. Mm. John's Eve. But, you know, gentlemen, um, at your age, uh, although I presume you're listening to this, you have some interest in these things. But at your age, uh, my age seems a million miles away. And death a million miles beyond that. Take it from me, they're not very close. Death, in fact, is closer to you than age. So, get yourself ready. Get yourself in order. I mean, 
when I was about 14, uh, there was a big deal in the L.A. of the day about a fellow called Hal Lindsey and his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And there were signs and wonders and prophets everywhere. So I asked my uh, confessor, the late James Francis Connell McIntyre, what he thought about all this stuff. And his response was uh, that the world would end someday, but no man knows the time, the, the day or the hour. Uh, but one thing we know for certain is that each of our, our own worlds are going to end, and probably sooner than the end of the world. But, said he, if you are ready for the end of your world, you'll be ready for the end of the world if it comes in your time. Hmm. And that's about the wisest uh, advice on the end of the world I ever heard. Yeah, that mentality is very contagious. You said that in the the uh, your talk with Professor Beersack on Doomsday, and yeah. I like that because we don't need to worry about prophecy anymore. You know, we all have our own doomsday. We all have our own. You know, we have to get things in order for our own thing. Oh, uh, well, for our own life. Said Aloysius Gonzaga, who was a young Jesuit. Uh, uh, novice was playing tennis at the seminary and during the intermission one of the other kids asked him uh, what would you do if I could tell you absolutely that the world was going to end tonight and his response was well the first thing I do is finish this game <laughs> okay <laughs> so if, if this is the world's last night if this is it, if we're not going to make it to St. John's Eve, if the dawn isn't going to break again, then, ladies and gentlemen, prepare. I don't know if I can, in good conscience, end the show on this sort of note. Well, that would be a very, it's a downer note. Yeah, we like happy we fun notes. We like. We do. Yeah. We do. Well, let me see. I just thought of something. Okay. Disneyland. <laughs> Disneyland. Okay. It's a small world ride. Yeah. It's, it's a, a world of hope and a world of fears. It's a world of laughter and a world of tears. There's so much that we share that it's time we're aware. It's a small world after all. Is that helping? That helps me. That that that's an epic ride. That's from so, someone from Southern California. That is, that ride had such an epic uh, place in my mind. I mean, that was that that embodied Disney, right there. Well, you know, the funny thing is, my friend Axel, when he uh, I took him through Disney, and he's as you know, being German, he's a little irreverent toward our American sacred cows, <laughs> and he had some interesting uh, interesting thoughts in terms of improving Disney. But one of them was to turn It's a Small World into a shooting gallery. That's terrible. <laughs> <sighs> it's a world up. <laughs> <sighs> but actually, I've got even better a better way to uh, do it because it's not just St. John's Eve that's coming up. You know what else is coming up? What? Saturday in the park. 
I think it was the 4th of July. Right. Right. Yes. Fireworks, parades, barbecues, speeches by annoying people. It's going to be great. The 4th is coming, ladies and gentlemen. Independence Day. Line up them firecrackers. Or, or no, you're not permitted to. Some well, places, some cities. Yeah, not firecrackers. Oh, okay. Unless you're Chinese. Get your, uh, all right, fine. Get your Roman candles and your skyrocket. No, not those. All right. Get your safe and sane fireworks. Well, no, not in Los Angeles. Go to a park and see some demonstrations of fireworks there. Uh, if it's a safe park, if you're allowed to go. That's a mischaracterization. We're not that restrictive uh, when it comes to fireworks. Go to Somar, California, and watch as the locals let off Roman candles and skyrockets. There you go. Now, it's totally illegal being part of the city of Los Angeles. But for some reason, the LAPD leaves Somar alone the night of the 4th of July. They don't even send helicopters up over Somar. Can you guess why? No, I have no idea. Why? Any idea what a skyrocket would do to a helicopter? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was, uh, I'll be spending it here in Austria. But that used to be one of my the, the great moments of my year. would be sitting in my brother's backyard. Uh, just staring at all the fireworks. It was like the, the kind of display you'd have in a park, except you're directly under it. You know, every now and then pieces of burning stuff would right, fall. Right. So we'd have to have the the hose ready for the roof and everything, so nothing <laughs> caught on fire. But it was it was really extraordinary. Uh, yeah, it's no, it's no, no. I know. Get the get the hose ready in, in in case your house catches on fire. I get it. Somar was a very exciting place. Still is. In fact, another another things that would happen in Somar. I'm just I'm not bagging on Somar. I mean, the people there. Look, we're celebrating Independence Day, and the Silmarines have a heavy, heavy sense of independence because they don't take guff from the man if they can get away with it. So one of the very popular things in Somar is cockfight, cockfighting. You know, with with uh, roosters. Right. Now here's the thing: it's illegal. Now, I have to admit, I don't enjoy watching cockfighting myself because they slice each other up with razors on the back. So it's, yeah, it's, I don't care for it. But having said that, um, you know, it's a free country, right? Except that it's not. It's illegal in California. So when they, uh, when they find uh, these, cock, these cockfighting games, the cops break them up, they charge all of the owners with animal cruelty. What do you think they do with the chickens? What do they do? They kill them. They destroy them. But they're charging the owners with animal cruelty, but they're killing the stupid things. However, my brother has a theory about that. One time he and I were walking by the LAPD branch at Silmar, and this heavy, heavy odor of fried chicken came out. It just a huge wave. And Andre goes, boy, they must have broken up another cockfighting rig. <laughs> Oh, the joys of summer in the Southland. <laughs> yep, yep. Think of it. Going to the beach. Uh, as I say, the barbecuing, chilled white wine and salads. Uh, gosh, what other, what other kinds of summery stuff? Lemonade and iced tea. Uh, the the uh, uh, seersucker suits and uh, straw hats. In fact, next, next time... I'll probably be in Searsucker 
because mm. this is just too hot. So I'm going to have to yeah. admit that it's summer. I got my boater, by the way. Your what? My boater, my straw hat for the summer. Oh, okay. Good. So I'm I'm ready. And you see I'm uh-huh. bow tying alone now. Yep. It's just too hot, too hot. <sighs> but anyway, uh, it's summer, you know, as, uh, as uh, Nat King Cole tells us, roll out those hazy, lazy, crazy days of summer. Those days of popcorn and peanuts and beer. You get the idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's a good one to send everyone off on. So we'll see you. At, we'll see you next time, everyone. And remember, if it's Monday, it's off the menu. And the soul you save may be your own. Ah! Beware of Saint John's Eve. <laughs> good night, everybody. Hey.